This is the Farm and Garden Show with your host this week, Michael Foley. This program is pre-recorded because at the time you are listening, I'm busy managing the Willits Farmers Market, and that means I'm unable to take your calls. I spent the last part of last week at the annual Ecofarm Conference, arguably the biggest gathering of, orga- of organic farmers, their supporters, suppliers, and buyers on the West Coast. If there was one thread that ran through the conference, at least for me, it was the repeated concern that it's just very hard to make it as a small to medium farmer, whether it's the prices we get for our product, our access to water, or the regulations that we face. Today I want to look at one piece of that dilemma, the difficulty farmers face treating their workers fairly. Large-scale farmers face this dilemma too, but they often slough it off to labor contractors. And the federal government has created conditions that tend to make exploitation of migrant labor the likeliest outcome. But for the small, small farmers of Mendocino and Lake Counties, the dilemma is different, because by and large we don't employ migrant labor. Rather, our dilemma stems from the small scale and small income of our farms. How do we recruit and retain and compensate justly the workers we do bring to our farms? This week's program features an interview with Elizabeth Henderson, author of Sharing the Harvest, a very influential how-to book on creating and running CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture Programs. As we'll see, Elizabeth thinks that CSAs are one way to address the dilemma facing small farmers. But Elizabeth has devoted most of the last 30 years to creating organizations and programs to further agricultural justice on all sorts of farms, meaning fair prices for farmers and fair wages and working conditions for farm workers. She was at the 43rd Annual Equifarm Conference this last week, and that's where I caught up with her to learn more and to inquire more particularly into how fair labor practices might look for the very small, low-income farmers of Mendocino and Lake Counties. Our discussion takes us back and forth from sustaining farmers to sustaining our workers, because really, the two cannot be separated. Let's get started. Well, where should I start? I started farming at a time when there was a severe crisis going on in farm in farming in the United States. Mm-hmm. 1979, which was my first year on a farm, there were cavalcades of farmers on tractors yeah. demanding the restitution of parity payments with supply management, mm-hmm. and they lost. Yeah, and a lot of people were losing farms because prices. We're not covering the costs of keeping the farms going, and that's continued to this day. Mm-hmm. We've lost something like three million farms. And in that particular period, in the late seventies and early eighties, the farm very... population was cut in half. Yeah. Um, well, it actually, took, anyway, exactly <laughs> when what the date was, yeah. but that is what happened, and it was a deliberate um, set of policies mm-hmm. put in motion which was the result of the increasing corporate capture of control over the food system. Mm -hmm. And a farmer named Brad Wilson, who was involved in the farmer justice movement back in the the 70s and 80s, is also an economist. And he's put together this enormously detailed data, which shows the amount of money that's been transferred over the years from farmers to 
agribusiness. Oh, wow. And the subsidies make up a very small amount of what's been transferred. So there's this big hole of the money that farmers got when parity payments from their markets actually paid their costs, and they lost that. And so subsidies were put in place, but it's a tiny amount of money, and that the trench that was taken away from rural people, farmers, and the people who work for them was huge. Yeah. Bill- billions you, of dollars. Can you say, explain parity payments a little bit? You and I are of an age to know something about that. Wendell Berry talks about parity, but it's been dead so long that most people don't know what that program was like. Well, parity was put in place in 1933-35 as part of the um, Delano, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. Mm-hmm. And it was to save farms from going out of business and being foreclosed upon and people kicked off the land. Mm-hmm. And what it did was it instituted price levels that markets had to pay so that farmers got enough for what they sold to cover the cost of running, of keeping the farms going. Mm-hmm. And in exchange, the farmers agreed to limit the supply that they grew, supply management, where they actually would come out and measure how big an area you were growing grains on or soybeans or whatever, and you might have to cut back on some of it. Mm-hmm. So the supply was more in balance with what was going to be purchased, Mm -hmm. and that helped bring the prices up. And farmers also had, grain farmers, kept a reserve. So in case either of disaster and that food was needed, or if the prices got too high because the supply was too low, the farmers could release grain into the market and bring the price down. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't damaging to consumers. Mm The farmers also had to agree uh, agree to um, practice conservation. And that's what ended the Dust Bowl. Farmers had to use conservation practices, you know, strip farming, um, not planting, you know, with rows that go up and downhill but across the field, things mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. cover cropping. Mm-hmm. And that ended the, the, the Dust Bowl. Mm-hmm. So this worked as a system quite well through the 40s, through through World War, World War II, it worked very well, and into the early 50s. And that was the time when corporate control and concentration in the food system was getting stronger and stronger, and their power of changing the laws in Congress increased. Um, mm-hmm. If you've seen the work of Phil Howard or Mary Hendrickson on concentration. Mm-hmm. It's very few companies control vast amounts of oh. all the different kinds of meats, um, beef, yeah. pork, chicken, um, farm inputs, fertilizer, seed. Yeah. So farmers have very too, few choices of who to sell to, and they have to pay the price of whatever's charged in the marketplace because there aren't many choices of who to buy from. So parity was the opposite of that, Mm -hmm. where it it wasn't the taxpayer chipping in subsidies to help keep some farms in business, 
but it was the buyers paying farmers what they were due. So we don't have that anymore, and mm -hmm. that's why we have continued to lose farms. Mm -hmm. There's a new crisis right now going on with organic dairy farms going out of business mm -hmm. because of this kind of concentration. Yeah. So when I started farming, um, mm -hmm. I was interested in CSA because it looked like a way that farmers could design like a club around their farm of people who understood that it was important to have local and organic farms staying in business mm -hmm. and that people would pay enough to keep those farms in business. So I didn't actually start a CSA until 1988-89. Um, Robin Van N started the first one in the United States in 85-86. In I was that late. Wow. She was a friend of mine uh -huh. and I followed what she was doing and she gave any number of presentations all over the country at farmer work workshops. Mm -hmm. And she wrote a small, like a, a, a guidebook on how to do a CSA called It's Not Just About Vegetables. Mm -hmm. But people were on her to write a book, a more extensive book about CSA. And knowing her, knowing that she was having trouble writing, I offered to help. So that was how I got started working on Sharing a Harvest, The uh -huh. Citizen's Guide to Community Supported Agriculture. Uh -huh. And she unfortunately died of asthma and poverty because if she had enough money to take an ambulance to the hospital, she might have lived. Hmm. But she was trying to get there in her car and a friend was helping her and the lock froze on the car and by the time they bust oh. around, she was gone. Oh my. So I took what little notes she had left and pulled together that book. Mm -hmm. And a big section of the book that grew especially for the second edition was ways of making CSA membership available to more diverse populations, either lower income people or people from different ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. And at this conference today, I ran into Maria Catalan. Mm -hmm. Yes. Her her farm is, was wiped out by this latest storm. She studied at Alba, and I was the, the early graduates, and one of the first to say, I'm going to do organic. Uh -huh. And she started a CSA, and I somehow heard about that. And my son speaks Spanish, so I had him interview her for the book, and she allowed me to print her crop list as an example of how you could design a CSA for a particular ethnic group uh -huh. because she was growing food for her um, Hispanic community. But now she's her, she's living in a shelter and like 80% of her land is flooded and crops mm. wiped mm. out. Mm. So I'm hoping to contribute myself and encourage lots of other people to give to her GoFundMe campaign because uh -huh. it's just heartbroken. Yeah. Heartbreaking that she would be wiped out of farming after all these years. And her name is Maria Catalan. Catalan. Okay. Catalan. She farms near in Salinas. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, so from the beginning, I saw CSA and organic as a way of addressing the problem that farmers were having mm -hmm. of getting a decent price. And when 
the National Organic Program first set of regulations was released. I was a member of the National um, Campaign for Sustainable Agriculture Organic Committee, and a number of us wrote comments to USDA saying, are you going to include fair pricing for farmers and fair treatment of farm workers among the standards for the National Organic Program? Mm -hmm. Because that's part of organic internationally. IFOM, the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movements, has four principles of organic agriculture. Ecology, health, care, and fairness. Uh -huh. And fairness means that all creatures, human and animals and microorganisms, and people who work on farms and work throughout the food supply chain, have a dignified life mm -hmm. and are paid living wages so that they can um, contribute joyously mm -hmm. to um, a food system that's creating food that's in harmony with the earth. And the answer that we got back from the USDA was, this is not in our purview. Uh -huh. So yeah. that was why people from CATA, the Farm Worker Support Committee in New Jersey, um, Comité de Apoyo a los Trabajadores Agrícolas, mm -hmm. and me representing NOFA, and people from RAFI, Rural Advancement Foundation International, mm -hmm. and Marty Mesh from Florida Organic Growers, started getting together to try and figure out how we could keep fairness in organic agriculture. Uh -huh. And we created the Agricultural Justice Project mm -hmm. and its Food Justice Certification Program. So this card that I've given you shows you where you can access the standards for food justice certification. Uh -huh. And this really extensive toolkit for farmers how to improve their pricing so that they can figure out how to get the best price they can anyway, and especially resources in how to be a fair employer. Mm -hmm. So how to um, have an employee handbook where you acknowledge your employee's right to freedom of association, to organize either as a union or probably something much more modest, like just coming to you to discuss issues mm -hmm. about the work at the farm, mm -hmm. recognizing that, and that you commit to paying living wages. And if you can't pay living wages, that you agree to share your financials for the farm with the people who work on your farm and figure out a way to get to the point where you can pay living wages. Wow. Yeah. So that's what these resources are about. Mm -hmm. And recently, younger farmers who advise us said, have told us that we learn from YouTube, so you have to make short videos. <laughs> so there's, got that. there are several short videos okay. that um, we have the links to on this. So I will let the listeners know when, when we're finished. That would be great. What these links for yeah, are. Yeah, that would be I excellent. Think there will be a lot so of there, interest. So there are two short videos on how to resolve conflicts on a farm. Mm -hmm. We worked with the Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence in Rochester, and there's one short video on how to resolve conflicts among farm workers on a farm, mm -hmm. and the other one between an employer and the workers. Uh -huh. We at the School of Adaptive Agriculture 
we have a fairly well-developed program on how to create a culture of care in oh. the workplace. Okay. Um, and that's, I mentioned to you, the grant I applied for. So that that's part of the, the idea, is to spread that, is to, to continue to give those kinds of workshops. That's excellent. I'm so glad to hear about that. Yeah. Um, had nothing to do with me. It came out of other people involved in the leadership who just were inspired and um, created this this wonderful program. Hmm. Well, I want to know more about it. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps some of the resources that we've created in our toolkit, which is freely available, mm -hmm. um, will be helpful for your yeah. program. Yeah. Because yeah. we have like <clears throat> templates. Um, one of the videos is how to take our model employee handbook and adapt it for your farm uh -huh. so that you can have written labor policies like in an afternoon uh -huh. and then train your employees to use them. Mm -hmm. And there's a standard operating procedure thing on how to create a health and safety plan and train your workers and everybody involved in the farm and how to use it mm -hmm. so that your farm is a safe place. Yeah, yeah, excellent. I just want to remind you that you are listening to KZYXNZ, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting listener-supported community radio. And this is the Farm and Garden Show. And I am interviewing Elizabeth Henderson of the Agricultural Justice Project about ways of creating a just a more just relationship with workers on our farms and particularly on the farms of Lake and Mendocino County. Can I ask you can I back up a little bit and sure. ask you about another project that I associate you with and maybe maybe I'm wrong and that is um, an evaluation of the various fair trade standards that um, was out and available on the web for a while, and I have not well, been able I, to find it. Yeah, I was um, part of the Domestic Fair Trade Association, because uh -huh. the Agricultural Justice Project was one of the groups that got that started in about 2008. Uh -huh. And there was support at that time from Organic Valley and Equal Exchange, just a number of, of organizations. Some of the small farm worker groups like community to community development in Washington state. Hmm. But fairly quickly, the commercial entities dropped out. Uh -huh. Organic Valley stopped coming and paying any dues and equal exchange and the wonderful nut butter people in New York state. Um, but anyway, the farm worker groups really tried hard to keep it going, but they did not have the resources. Uh -huh. And we didn't either, the Agricultural Justice Project. So one of the things, while, we, while that was going well, was we developed a very, very detailed evaluation of fair trade programs. Because mm -hmm. we tried to set up a meeting of the different fair trade programs around the country to come to agreement on what, fair, fair, what needed to be fair right. for a program <laughs> to count as, as fair trade. Mm -hmm. so there's pretty much agreement internationally about what, what is organic and what needs to be in organic standards. But fair trade is all over the place. Yeah. For some, it just means that the farmers 
who grew the stuff got a slightly better price. Mm-hmm. And some of the programs, like the Agricultural Adjustment Project, go all the way, and you have to be paying fair wages. Yeah. And everybody in the whole food chain has to be paying fair wages. Mm-hmm. And the buyers have to be paying fair prices mm-hmm. and taking into consideration the needs of the farmers who are supplying them and the workers who are working on their farms. Mm-hmm. But that gathering of the minds and agreement never happened because Fair Trade USA really um, blew it up. That is not part of what they do, and they didn't want to be constrained to take workers into consideration mm-hmm. in developing their standards. Uh-huh. So I won't go in now to all the things that yeah. have been wrong with Fair Trade USA, <laughs> but they're fair in some ways mm-hmm. and very unfair in others. Uh-huh. Well, while that detailed evaluation was available, I really appreciated it. Mm. Uh, it was it was really useful. Yeah. And I'm sorry that you know the project couldn't be continued. Yeah, we didn't have the resources to yeah. Yeah. keep updating it. Right. Um, so let's go back to what fair labor practices might look like. And, mm-hmm. and I think I've already told you I'm coming from what is a peculiar point of view in the current landscape of agriculture, but I think is going to be increasingly important as big industrial ag becomes harder to keep afloat. Mm-hmm. And that is um, very small farms. Um, I did some research recently, and over 60% of farms in Mendocino and Lake Counties gross under $25,000 a year. Yeah, really that many. Hmm. That many. Over half are, are female-owned, by the way. Another really important data point about small farms is something like 89% of the farms in the whole country survive because someone has an off-farm job. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the proverbial spouse with a good job in town, right. sometimes a good government job in town mm-hmm. is part of the proverb. Yeah, with, with <laughs> health insurance. Yeah. So these, these are farms without a lot of resources, and yet, and they're often very productive mm-hmm. because they use intensive growing practices, mm-hmm. which means they need labor. And so there's that tension between being able to provide the labor and the, the, the low income that characterizes these farms. And so how do you envision squaring that, dealing with that? And I'll, and I'll, I'll talk about how some of us have done that in the past, and, but why don't we start with you? Well, I think what a small farm like that has to do is to find some way of treating the people who work with them with dignity and find out what they need. Mm-hmm. So if it's a share of the food or a share of the take that the farm makes or working out together how to sell more and earn more so mm-hmm. that it can cover more people's costs. Because mm-hmm. probably on those small farms, nobody's working full-time. Right. Most of them are working at some other job as well. Yeah. So at least <clears throat> for the farm time that they're putting in, People should be paying, paid a living wage equivalent, mm-hmm. either in money or in produce mm-hmm. or in learning or some combination. Or, or in some kind of room and board. 
is yeah, another well, alternative. Sure. Yeah. yeah, a place yeah. to live that that counts for a lot, especially yes. the way things are now. Especially the way things are now in our area, housing is so short. People are constantly coming to us looking for inexpensive housing. Mm. So, yeah, those are those are really reasonable standards. Um, we find ourselves up against legal demands that ask us, first of all, to quantify that. So if, if room and board is part of that, the state of California has some fairly clear legal guidelines about how you value that. Mm -hmm. um, but that value has to be included in payroll tax um, in calculating you know, what the taxable income of that person is. Um, so that raises, you know, raises what you're paying out in payroll yeah. tax if you're, if you're doing it strictly according to the books. Mm. And then there is, well, let's, let's start with that. Um, <laughs> well, it depends how risk-averse you are, you know? Mm -hmm. For um, the 30 years of my CSA, we had the members, all the members, help with work on the farm mm -hmm. and help with distribution, or else they were members of the core group. Mm -hmm. We did not consider that volunteer labor. Mm -hmm. The way we kind of made it at least appear legal um, was the farm and the CSA were separate legal entities. The CSA was a buying club. Mm -hmm. The buying club bought all the food from the farm for the CSA shares, and then the members came out and picked their own, mm -hmm. picking for one another. Ah, I see. So okay. that's how we justified it legally. Uh -huh. Well, there were a few people who would do more work in, mm -hmm. in order to get a discount on the share price. Uh -huh. But we wanted it to be fair for everybody. Mm -hmm. So everybody did something. Uh -huh. And we also had a sliding scale of payments. Mm -hmm. So some people would pay almost twice as much as other people for the same amount of food mm -hmm. because they could afford it. Yeah, And it wasn't necessarily the richest people either. Right, It was the people who cared the most about the farming that we were doing mm -hmm. and the food that we were producing. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm really interested in some such model of community support for farmers and food production in, you know, at the again at the community level. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know that there's really any other way to do it, and the CSA is the you know the instrument that mm -hmm. most people have chosen to do that. So, but coming back to the farm labor thing, another way in which a lot of us have dealt with it is through woofers and interns mm. and apprentices. We've used different words um, and sometimes different realities. Woofers were recruited. It's a short, shorter term usually. Yes, but it, they were recruited generally through the Woof USA. Oh, right. Yeah. And they, they tended to be shorter term. Um, that we've always insisted on a longer term. But there's, you know, a, a lot of bad feeling about woofers um, in the sense that people have regarded that whole program as exploitative. Yeah. Um, sometimes the young people who come through 
feel exploited or they come through carrying tales of really being exploited <coughs> on other farms. Um, and so we've, on Green Uprising Farm, we've moved toward an internship model where we offer a small stipend, we offer lodging and meals, or at least um, nowadays it's all the vegetables you can glean from the farm and, um, and dairy in, and educational opportunities. So we try to do a little bit of providing those and the rest of it we provide through the School of Adaptive Agriculture. My understanding is that it probably should go further, that, um, that farmers should have a kind of a learning plan with their, with their intern. Anyway, you, you well in the AGP in the food justice standards, uh -huh. we require a learning contract. Yeah. So interns must be paid, at least minimum wage, and the learning contract lays out what they want to learn, and you evaluate it with them through the season to make sure they're really learning that, mm -hmm. so that it's fair to them. Yeah. If you're if they're accepting lower pay then they should be getting the learning that they came for. Yeah, exactly. And so we have some examples of learning contracts. Mm -hmm. It can be quite simple, mm -hmm. uh, just a list of their skills. Yeah. And it could be that there are skills that you don't supply, so then you could send them to an eco-farm conference or a field day or yeah. for a couple of days on somebody else's farm yeah. to learn those skills. Exactly. And that, that is the model that we're, that we're moving toward and that we've used to some extent. Um, but yeah, I think these resources are really important and really important for the farmers in our area who, as I say, are mostly low income but depend upon workers of one, one kind or another. You are listening to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM. KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. We also stream live at kcyx.org. And this is the Farm and Garden Show with Michael Foley as your host this week. And I'm interviewing Elizabeth Henderson of the Agricultural Justice Project about how we can establish more just relationships between farmers and workers and especially in the conditions of our farms in Mendocino and Lake Counties. The difficulties of making all this work are, are, are real, and I, I don't want to minimize them. One of the most successful and longest-running organic farmers who supplies our farmers' markets in Mendocino County told me last year that her one farm worker earned double what she did, mm -hmm. and that um, because she either didn't want to, didn't know how to do it, or because it was too expensive, didn't put him on, you know, legal, legal wages. Um, but probably, had she thought through the finances of it, paying a wage might have worked out. Maybe she just didn't want to do the paperwork involved. And and that may well be employee. it. Um, I just did the paperwork for the first time as director of the school mm. in hiring somebody, and it was a major headache. And yeah, it's I, a big pain in the neck. Uh, well, something that I've been, you know, an idea that I keep floating that 
hope someone might pick up somewhere would be creating a cooperative office for farmers. Yes. That would generate all that paperwork mm-hmm. that people who want to grow things usually don't like to do. Yeah. And the farmers could decide which paperwork they wanted. They would have to fill out the information once and then, you know, sophisticated computer equipment, you can do a version for the certification application, another one for the Department of Labor, the taxes, etc. I think that could be really doable. Yeah, that is a great idea. I, I just talked with somebody from another local nonprofit about doing something similar for local nonprofits, little mm. ones like ours. There are some organizations that do that for uh-huh. nonprofits. Uh-huh. Uh, there's one in Ithaca, New York, the Center for Transformational something. Something. Oh. Yeah. Oh. yeah. And we've actually been talking for years about trying to do that. And it just hasn't gotten off the ground. Yeah, well, but you among can sign farmers, up with them and they do all yeah. your paperwork. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We have we have one farmers organization in Mendocino County um, with not enough to do, and that might be a project that we want to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it it's really good to sort of hash out some of this with you, because I think we all feel strongly we want to do right by the people who work with us. Mm. Um, and as I say, we've always had an educational component, but we haven't done it probably as rigorously as we should. Um, we've had something like that um, educational contract the last few years, um, but finding templates that really work for us is, is I think, really important. There's a, a group I wanted to mention to you called Not Our Farm, uh-huh. which is an organization that sort of... It may be, actually be a not, um, an official not-for-profit, probably isn't it? It was started by a young woman who has worked on a number of farms, didn't have the resources or really even want to be the farm manager. Mm-hmm. She wanted to be a farm worker. Mm-hmm. So they have a website, the Not Our Farm website, where people tell their stories as farm workers. Yeah. I think people don't realize, especially here, Echo Farm people, um, people in the movement, don't realize that there are people like that Mm. who don't want their own farm. They want to be farm workers. But, of course, they want to work in in an environment that's equitable and just. Mm. I think some of the best organic farms at Echo Farm do know that. And provide those jobs. Uh-huh. I mean, I've visited a few of the outstanding farms, like Wintergreen in um, Washington State, and no, I'm sorry, that's in Oregon, and um, Phil Foster's Ranch. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Pinnacle Farm. Pinnacle. Yeah, and he provides excellent jobs for people. Uh-huh. They can, when he made the initial investment, mm-hmm. and there are other people who are doing the managing, running yeah. the greenhouses, yeah. et cetera, and so forth. Um, I think Dick Pichotto of Lakeside Organics is in that category. Mm. Um, his people love him, mm. and partly they love him because he incorporates them into, into the management, mm. into the decision-making. They started 
I don't know, 6 or 7 a.m. every morning with a management meeting and mm. parse out what needs to be done in the various parts of his far-flung operation. And mm. So, yeah, that that is certainly there. Yeah, and I think um, Full Belly Farm is a farm of that kind. Uh-huh, yeah, in the Cape Valley. Not far from us, actually. My wife and I ran into a farm in Oxnard. I think it's called Terra Nova. And it was created by a group of young farm workers who wanted to be farm workers mm. with support, I think, from the Episcopal Church or a Episcopal mm. Church and their, their Hispanic ministry. And they've created a community farm. They do a CSA and they do direct sales. And, but it's run by the young farm workers. And um, it was very inspirational. AJP has had a project um, that we've done in the Northeast, and this past year we've been doing it together with the Ohio Ecological Food and Farming Association in Ohio, uh-huh. where we invite farmers to fill out a fairly lengthy self-assessment. Mm-hmm. And based on that self-assessment, we provide resources to help them um, either improve pricing, um, get an employee handbook, have fair fair policies, mm-hmm. health and safety. And a number of the farms that uh, filled out that self-assessment, there's such an interesting range of different projects. Uh-huh. Um, there's a farm that's owned by a labor union. There's a farm oh. that's um, using um, land the public land in a, in a small town. There are several different church projects of different kinds. Uh-huh. Wow. Wow. How interesting. Yeah. Looking for, I, yes, I'm looking for models. <laughs> um. And the um, farm worker, the berry pickers, who are members of um, Familias Unidas por la Justicia, which is a farm worker union mm-hmm. in Washington state, they have created a cooperative farm. Uh-huh, yeah. So there, there are farms like that. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. And I have to say one reason I'm looking for models is that I'm really concerned about local food security. Mm. And a few entrepreneurial, mostly young market gardeners are not going to provide it. Mm-hmm. And that's we've seen a lot of growth in that sector. Mm. in the last 10 years, 10 or 15 years since I've been here. Um, but, and we actually have someone farming grain, bringing that back to our area, but still it's not enough. And mm-hmm. so something something bigger, something that's financed by a group like a church, mm-hmm. um, just is very attractive, just seems like something we want to do. And you need to look also at organizations like SCORE, which is retired business people Uh who will train younger business people in business skills. Uh There are organizations like that around the country that could be enlisted in support of farms. Yeah. Hmm. I was looking to um, slow money. Mm -hmm. There's no local chapter and... Mm. (laughs) Um, and I, I didn't manage to connect, but it seems oh. that seems like another. Yeah, there's avenue. not enough slow, slow money to go around. <laughs> That's right, exactly. 
Yeah. Um, just to go back for a moment to the, some of the difficulties that we that we face in doing it right, um, it's insurance. Hmm. Um, general liability insurance um, is bad enough, but in my experience and that of some of the young farmers I know, finding a workers' compensation policy hmm. is in California, and and I know California seems to regulate that market a little tiny bit mm. but my experience is it's 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 kind of a a wild west as far as pricing goes i had one mm. uh one young woman who has become a shepherd and she needed needed help part-time help went looking for a policy and she got a quote of four thousand dollars a year that's crazy. It's crazy. And eventually she worked it out, and I'm not sure, quite sure, so that it was more affordable. Well, I would think an organization like CAF uh-huh. would have the answer to that. That It would be worth talking to CAF about going after that one. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to us. To well, it's a pleasure to, to meet you and to know about your work. Yeah. And these are problems that, as a community, we really have to solve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are, um, because they're crucial to moving forward and just providing our communities with food in a way that serves the farmer as well as the community. For those who want to check out the resources that the Agricultural Justice Project has created for farmers, here are those links. Uh, Their farm toolkit is at bit.ly slash ajp hyphen toolkit. That's bit.ly slash ajp hyphen toolkit. And there's a video on adapting their model handbook for employees at linktr. E-E slash AJP handbook, all one word. So that's linktr.ee slash AJP handbook. There's also a guide to writing a farm health and safety plan at bit.ly slash AJP hyphen safety hyphen SOP. And there are two videos on conflict resolution, bit.ly slash farm hyphen conflicts hyphen one, and bit.ly slash farm dash conflicts dash two. If you want to learn more about the Agricultural Justice Project and to contribute to its efforts, all of its efforts depend upon funding, go to bit.ly slash AJP-support-4-farmers. That's bit.ly slash AJP-support-4-farmers. So what are the options and possibilities for providing both farmers and farm workers with the support they need? Elizabeth pointed to the CSA model as one way to meet at least some of our farm labor needs. Where the model is more than just a subscription, but involves members in the work of the farm, harvest, packing, and distribution can be carried out by members. 
Members might even participate in other aspects of the farming operation, though farm labor law could call these workers who ought to be paid and accounted for in employment taxes. Another model is a nonprofit farm of some sort, where a community, a church, a labor union, or other entity pays farmers and farm workers alike a living wage for providing food to the community. Light Power Farm is one example where the CSA model has been turned into a genuinely community-owned farming model. And there are a few CSAs in our region that have adopted a similar model, even offering members unlimited UPIC in exchange for the financial support needed to get all the work of the farm done. Usually these are on a sliding scale, so they're available to a wide range of people, not just those who happen to have spare money. There are all sorts of variations imaginable. For instance, a town or organization might pay farmers and workers a basic wage to maintain the farm, while sales supplement that, as well as covering costs of production. As the industrial food system falters, and we'll undoubtedly have more to say on that topic in later shows, we need to look more and more at these sorts of approaches to providing food for our communities. The time is really now because it will take a lot of building and trial and error to create a new local food system. You're listening to KZYX and Z, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. And it's important to underline that community. Having traveled recently with the radio on, I've become aware once again of just what a rare gem KZYX is. Most radio is corporate-owned and the programming canned. Even your plain vanilla NPR stations are mostly canned programming. Many of them are run by community colleges or universities, but they do not serve their communities well or even their students, who rarely get the opportunity to broadcast a show. Alicia Bales has built an even more impressive community orientation into this station, enlarging our local news and public affairs broadcasting and diversifying it with voices from our important Hispanic and Native American communities. Now that she is gone, it's up to us to see to it that this sort of attention to truly local news and affairs doesn't go away and keeps on growing. Before I wrap up for the hour, I want to turn to another topic that turned up persistently at Echo Farm, and that is the state of the organic label. There were not one, but two alternatives to the National Organic Program represented at the conference. Real Organic Certification held a day-long pre-conference event featuring Paul Hawkins as keynote speaker and a host of well-known organic growers from around the country with testimony on why they've decided to go beyond organic as we know it. And Regenerative Organic Certification and supporting organizations were there as well. The organic label was turned into a national program run by the USDA in the late 80s and early 90s in response to a perceived problem. There were state-level organizations like our own CCOF around the country that certified farmers as maintaining organic standards, but no nationwide agreement on what those standards were. And more important for some players, no way that buyers in distant states could be assured that what they were getting from another state was truly organic. In other words, as in many other industries, those who wanted to be players in a national market 
sought a single set of regulations they could follow. The result was the National Organic Program, NOP for short, which adopts standards that are hammered out by the National Organic Standards Board. That board is made up of representatives of farmers and their organizations, corporate food retailers and processors, and, belatedly, consumers. Congress has the last say, and the USDA adjudicates when Congress hasn't been involved. The USDA now owns the word organic, just as California State owns the word corporation within the state. You can't describe your product as organic unless you are duly certified. The fine for doing so is up to $10,000. With that kind of oversight, you can expect that organic standards can be watered down. And that's what we have seen happen. Whereas the slogan under which organic became popular was feed the soil, not the plants, the NOP now recognizes organic hydroponic operations. Whereas livestock freely grazing was always the ideal of organic farmers, the NOP allows minimal access to the outdoors, with certified organic chicken and egg operations looking for all the world like an industrial warehouse. And whereas traditional organic was built on careful management of soil and watershed for the health of the farm, many big growers are content with slopping on a layer of commercially prepared compost to meet the NOP's minimum standards. Those who grew up in the organic movement are naturally in revolt, hence the real organic label. Regenerative organic focuses on soil health, animal welfare standards, and fairness for farmers and farm workers. Real organic is about the integrity of the promise of organic. These are worthy initiatives. The hitch is that they are add-on programs. You have to be NOP certified before you can go on to get these stricter certifications. And for many of us in Mendocino County, that just doesn't make sense. It's not that certification is expensive, though it can be without the subsidies that the state of California offers, though not for the new add-ons. It's that the paperwork associated with certification is onerous, often too much for small farmers. One successful and long-time organic grower I know just decertified most of her vegetables because she was being asked to keep track of every radish she brought to farmer's market. And she knew that her customers trusted her with or without certification. Most of us are in a similar position. When my daughter Allegra joined us at Green Uprising Farm, she had been a CCOF inspector for some time. She recommended we not go through the complicated process of certification. For most of us, organic certification takes more resources than we have. Why all the paperwork? Because this is a program based on mistrust. But most of us farming on a small scale for local consumption already have trust between ourselves and our customers and between one another. Long-distance trade fosters distrust and certification. Still, we want some sort of assurance, and we want to keep ourselves honest. The alternative developed here in Mendocino County is Mendocino Renegade Certified, a program and label created by some of the pioneers of organic here in the county who were upset even at the initial compromises of the NOP and who wanted to retain the peer certification that they had helped create for organic in the state. Mendocino Renegade, like real organic and regenerative organic, proposes to go quote-unquote beyond organic as we know it. For Renegade certification, your farm is either organic or it is not. 
no dual operations, conventional and organic, side-by-side, side, as NOP allows. And Renegade also bans some fertilizer sources and soil additives that NOP permits. But the biggest difference is that Renegade is a peer review system. Though some reporting is done, standards and compliance with standards are reviewed by fellow farmers. Annual inspections are conducted by fellow farmers, and the inspection is an opportunity to seek advice, something CCOF inspectors are not supposed to give, as much as it is to see what practices are in place. Renegade is about building trust, not complying on paper with standards set in D.C. The Ukiah Co-op accepts Renegade certification alongside organic certification, and several farmers display their Renegade logo at farmers' markets. The label represents a homegrown alternative to the NOP and NOP-based certifications for small farms that serve their local communities and don't seek distant markets. A number of people right now are working, working to strengthen the organization and spread the word. Ultimately, though, organic has to be about trust. No inspector can know all the practices at a farm, especially a large one. No customer knows all the questions to ask a farmer. Our farms can be open to customers in many cases, and farmers can be open to questions about just how they grow food and raise animals, what their goals and priorities are, and how they steward their land. That is a work of years. No certificate is a real substitute for it. It's not possible on a national or even regional scale, but it is possible here. And that's it for the day, and I hope you enjoyed the show. The Farm and Garden Show can be heard every first and third Thursday, hosted by Elizabeth Archer, and every fourth Thursday, hosted by myself and Sarah Grusky. Next month, we hope to have as our guest Donna DeTerra to speak with Sarah about Donna's concept of full-circle herbalism, based in locally found and locally grown herbs and made available according to need throughout the community. They'll also discuss the Mobile Apothecary Project, both have been working on, together with the Mendocino County Herb Guild, for some time. Again, thanks for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.